Cool, good morning. My name is John. I'm the pastor here at Christ Sanctuary. And uh, if you have a Bible, please open them to the book of Ruth. We're in our third part of a five-part series on uh, the book of Ruth, uh, which is in between the book of Judges in the Old Testament and 1 Samuel. Uh, hopefully, we, we're getting better at finding Ruth, are we? A little bit? That's good. I notice there's, uh, there's a few new people here. And uh, so it's probably in my best interest for us to just have a quick recap where we are at the, up to the start of chapter 3, uh, three or four chapters of uh, the book of Ruth. Ruth starts off with a famine in a well-known little town called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Literally, there is no bread in the house of bread. And the story then shifts to a family. Elimelech the father, Naomi the mother, and they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they go to the land of Moab, about 80 kilometers away, to try and find some food. Elimelech disobeys God in that he goes to a pagan land outside of Israel, where he wasn't supposed to go, where people around him didn't worship the same God that he did. And he goes there so that he does not die. And what happens next? He dies anyway. His sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. And ten years later, both of his sons die too, without having any children. Naomi is then left a widow, and she decides to head back to Bethlehem because she has heard that God has provided food. The famine is now over. She heads back to Bethlehem, and she says, Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or sweetheart or pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She's not viewing God as her friend when she goes back to to Bethlehem, she is not trusting that God is necessarily good, just sovereign, but not good. But along the way, an amazing thing happens on the way back, and that is her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite woman, converts to being a follower of God. She leaves behind the false religion, possibly, of worshipping the god Chemosh and worships Yahweh, the god of the Bible. And she joins with her mother-in-law, Naomi, as they go back to Bethlehem. Ruth, being a great gal with wonderful character, decides to go out into the fields to work and to to get some barley, get some food for her and her mother-in-law. And they go out into the fields and happen to come to a section of land owned by Boaz. I say happen to get there because they didn't plan to. But we believe that God guided them to Boaz's field. And Boaz, for whatever reason, decides to look after Ruth decides to bless her. And he hears that she is a woman of character, a woman who is 
left behind her old way of life and her false gods and followed her mother-in-law and is seeking the good of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz decides to just bless her, give her extra food, and go far beyond the requirements of the law in blessing Ruth. And now we get to chapter 3. This is a wonderful short story, and in chapter 3, romance happens. Now, I'm not going to be talking primarily about dating and courtship off this chapter, because it's not really what it's about. It's about God's goodness being revealed in the plans of these people. So, chapter 3. Let's read from verse 1 of Ruth. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit we would see 
your plans and your purposes and your goodness and your attributes more and more through this text, Lord. I pray that you would use it to give us a renewed appreciation of what Jesus Christ has done. I pray that it would open our eyes more and more to the fact that you are sovereign and that you are good and that you care for your children. We ask this all in the name of the one by who all things are possible, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we come to the start of chapter 3 here, we realize that Naomi, good mother-in-law that she is, wants to look after Ruth now that her husband has died. She wants to give her a husband. She wants to give her safety. She wants to give her security. And Naomi had prayed back in chapter 1 and verse 9 that God would grant Ruth a husband. This is how that prayer gets fulfilled. Every single prayer in the book of Ruth gets answered in the story. But we're going to ask ourselves, if Naomi prayed for Ruth to have a husband, why this elaborate plan here in chapter 3, right? This is an elaborate plan. Why? Why the need to plan if she's prayed for it already? Isn't God just going to do it for her? Isn't God just going to provide Ruth a husband? Because that's what Naomi prayed for? Why act at all? Because we are not robots. We are not pawns on a chessboard getting moved around by God. Not how it works. We are not robots that don't have wolves. Because God is sovereign and good, we can act. Because God is sovereign and good, we do pray and we believe that he answers prayer. And we do pray because we believe that when we pray, we're seeking to align ourselves with God's will. We want to do what he wants. At the start, of, at the end of chapter 1, Naomi was bitter. And as the story goes on, you see this woman transforming. She's no longer bitter. She is beginning to trust that God really is both sovereign and good. So what does she do? She plans. She makes a plan. She makes a plan to find Ruth a husband. She makes a plan so that her husband, Elimelech's estate, might be redeemed. Like the word that John Piper used to describe what they're doing here. They're planning by strategic righteousness. Strategic righteousness. You know that people who have hope make plans. If you're hopeless and you think that there's no way forward, you know what you do? You just sit and sulk. You don't plan. People with hope plan for the future, knowing that God goes with them. Yesterday, and apologies to the elders' wives, we had a six and a half hour elders' meeting. 
And that was to plan ahead for next year. To plan for the future of our church. You know why we do that? Because we believe that we have a gospel, we have a good God, we have a Holy Spirit, and therefore, we don't just sit and do nothing. We trust God and we plan, trusting that He will direct our steps. That's what we do. That's what's happening here. Hopeful people don't need to sit still and cry. They can move forward. And that's what this chapter is. That's what chapter 3 is. It's about 15 verses of planning. Naomi's plans, then Ruth's plans, then Boaz's plans. All three of them trusting that God will act because he is sovereign and good. So what is Naomi's plan? She says, Boaz, a relative, that nice guy, go find him. There's been a harvest. There's barley down at the threshing floor, which is where you uh, separate the, the wheat and the barley from the chaff. Possibly up on a, a high point on a hill with, with open sides so that the wind might blow through. There's a big party there tonight. Go down to the threshing floor. Boaz is going to be there. See, up until this point, Ruth has possibly been working for Boaz for about six or seven weeks. Boaz was really kind to her, took her out for lunch, gave her extra food. But there's been no second date. This is a temporary job. The harvest is soon going to be over, and then Boaz and Ruth are going to have nothing to do with each other after that. Time is running out. And as is the frustration of many women, Boaz is not interested in sealing the deal. So, I love what Naomi says here. Wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Clean yourself up. Boaz has only seen you in your work clothes. Put a nice dress on. Put on some perfume. Moabite number five. (laughs) So corny, it's funny. Let him eat and drink. And then go to the threshing floor. Don't introduce yourself to anyone and watch where Boaz goes to sleep. And when he goes to sleep, go over quietly. Uncover his feet and go to sleep at his feet. And he'll tell you what to do next. This is some plan. It's a plan, all right, but it's a weird one, right? Now, We've got to ask ourselves the question. Is she telling Ruth to cross the line? Like, go sleep at the feet of a man. Is she telling Ruth to cross the line? Is this being suggestive? Is this unwise? Is this deceptive? I read six commentators on that very question. And their response was viewed from saying it was totally fine, it was absolutely wise, through to it was quite a dubious plan. Not sinful, but dubious. 
It was dangerous. They could have backfired. And one said it was utterly despicable and underhand. She should never have done this. Couple things. Let's remember one thing. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Thankfully, we are not told to try and find a husband or a wife this way. It would be weird, right? That was the culturally accepted way of dating. Go fall asleep at someone's feet and when they wake up, tell them to marry you. No. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Fair enough. Along with that, I think there's nothing in this text which gives us any inclination that this was sinful. At best, this was a little bit too cunning. But it's not sinful. Naomi is trusting when she makes this plan that both Ruth and Boaz are going to act with integrity. She trusts their character. And as far as coming up with a plan, put yourself in their shoes. There's not a lot of options. Boaz was significantly older than Ruth. Maybe 15 to 20 years. Maybe more. Men that are 20 years older in this culture aren't asking women out. They're just not doing that. There's also the fact that there was an employer-employee relationship going on. Boaz was basically Ruth's boss. He might have felt uncomfortable saying, I'm keen on you. Perhaps as well, given that Elimelech's estate needed to be redeemed, Boaz was possibly waiting for the nearest kinsman redeemer to come redeem his estate on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. But perhaps the biggest barrier happening over here was that Ruth didn't have a dad to help her find a husband. We read in Jeremiah 29 that sons take wives and fathers give daughters in marriage. That was part of the Jewish culture. Ruth did not have a dad to help her find a good husband. They were left without much option. So there are barriers. So what Naomi says is basically, put yourself out there. Put yourself right in front of this man and see if he takes the bait. So what is a a kinsman redeemer? This redeemer word is coming up repeatedly. We'll look at this a little bit more next week, but... One thing we need to know is that this is a rule, a law, that comes from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 of Leviticus 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. God is saying, the land that you're living on belongs to me, not you. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And then when the year of Jubilee would come by, seven years later, the land would 
cross back over. What we're saying is, if you get too poor, you have to sell your land off, sell it to someone in your family, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, and they'll buy it. And eventually, you'll have the option of buying it back, or it will be given back to you after a period of time. This keeps the land in the family. However, with Elimelech dead, with Malon dead, with Chilean dead, there is no redeemer. Right? They need a redeemer. There is no land for Naomi and her family. Why does Naomi then not suggest that Ruth go directly to the nearest redeemer? Because Boaz is not the nearest redeemer. I think Naomi wants Ruth to get married to the Redeemer, and so she thinks that Boaz will be a better bet. That's her plan. And Ruth says, All that you say, I will do. I'll listen to you, Naomi. So Boaz is eaten, he's drunk, what most likely wine, which makes the heart merry, and there's been a harvest, so he's happy. Business is good. So he goes to sleep. Why is he sleeping in the threshing floor? Probably because at this point of the harvest, they sleep in the threshing floor to protect the crop. Quite simple. He protects the crop because it's an open building. Thieves can come in and take whatever they want if no one is there. Ruth slips in quietly and covers his feet and goes to sleep. At midnight, as all of us have experienced, Boaz gets cold feet and wakes up. Startled. Someone's at his feet. And he realizes that it's a woman. I love, there's, a, there's an old Jewish commentary from a thousand years ago. And it says that Boaz likely knew that there was a woman at his feet because in the moonlight he could tell that the person didn't have a beard. I like that. Now, there's nothing unlawful happening at this time, right? Nothing unlawful happening. It was apparently quite common for prostitutes to go to the threshing floor during the harvest and stay overnight there. But Ruth slept at Boaz's feet, not by his side. The story, the narrator, is deliberately trying to show that nothing sinful has happened here. And Ruth says to Boaz, identifies herself and says, spread your wings over your servant because you are a redeemer. This points us back to chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz prays for Ruth that the Lord would reward her for taking refuge under the wings of God. God reward you for taking refuge under God's wings. That's what Boaz prays for Ruth. And you know what happens? God uses Boaz to answer his own prayer for Ruth. How is that? How is, what does it mean to spread your wings over your servant? 
because you are a redeemer. Ruth is asking for two things. As a redeemer, Boaz, I want you to redeem my family's land. And number two, I want you to marry me. Quite simple. Naomi never asked Ruth to say that. But Ruth makes it explicitly clear what she wants. They have a little let's define our relationship talk thing. And so she says, I want you to redeem my family's land and I want you to marry me. To spread your wings can also commonly mean to spread your garment, right? Metaphorical, spread your, spread your wings, spread your garment. And it's only used one other time in Scripture, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 16, referring to love. And this is where God describes Israel as his bride. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Covering with the garment, covering with your wing. Protection, refuge, Boaz knew exactly what Ruth was asking for. I want to be your wife. Now, there is definitely, in some sense, some sort of sexual language happening here, right? It's there, it's in the text, all commentators make mention of it. Some people have accused Ruth of being immoral and trying to seduce Boaz. I want to be covered by your garment. I want to be next to you and covered with your cloak. Here's the thing. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that. Ruth is saying she wants Boaz to cover her with his garment. As his wife. She's not trying to be immoral. She's not trying to be a fornicator. She's not trying to be anything else. She's saying, I want to be with you as your wife. Nothing immoral is happening here. Sex outside of marriage back then is just as sinful as it is now. Boaz responds. And says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What he's saying is, you care about your family so much that you chose to marry me rather than some young, rich, wealthy guy. You could have had a husband your own age who was very wealthy, who could have taken care of you. But no, you chose me, an older man, because you wanted to redeem your family's land. So you chose a kinsman redeemer. He's saying, Ruth, I have so much respect for you. I have so much trust in your character. And he says, all my townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. He calls her a worthy 
woman. The same word used in Proverbs 31. We know Proverbs 31, ladies. Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife who can find. Same word. Worthy woman, excellent wife. A worthy wife who can find. And if you read, might be a little fun exercise for some of you. If you read Ruth and you go read Proverbs 31 describing that excellent wife, you'll see a number of similarities, at least eight similarities between Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman. So much so that in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the Jews have a slightly different order same books, but a different order of the Old Testament, Ruth is placed directly after Proverbs 31. It's commonly understood by many people in, 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 in Judaism that because Ruth follows Proverbs 31, Ruth is a picture, an example of the Proverbs 31 woman. The important thing here about this little relationship, which is basically turned into an engagement, is that Boaz is willing to marry Ruth because of her character. He goes, you're not an immoral woman. You're not a greedy woman. You're a woman of worth. You're a woman of character, a woman of integrity. She might be good-looking. She might be really funny. We're never told that that's why he marries her. He said he marries her because she's a worthy woman of character. She is a good legacy. Single guys, there's a lesson there. Pick a good legacy. A good wife is hard to find. Verse 12 Boaz says, now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Boaz is keen. He's just been asked to marry Ruth. He's interested. He wants to do it. But there's no immorality. He doesn't sleep with her. And he says, there's another closer redeemer. He knows that according to Leviticus 25 the laws relating to the redemption of land, that he doesn't have the right to take that land. He doesn't have the right to redeem that land unless the redeemer that's closer doesn't want it. He could marry Ruth. He could. He could marry Ruth, but he can't redeem the land Unless he first talks to the closer redeemer. The law of God stops Boaz. He says, I'm keen. I want to marry you. There's stuff I've got to sort out. I have to be obedient to God's law. We'll sort this out in the morning. I promise. And so he asks Ruth to go back to sleep at his feet. Don't go home in the dark. Stay safe here with me. The next morning, verse 15, 
the very first thing Boaz does is protects Ruth's reputation by not letting it be known that Ruth came to the threshing floor. I don't want anyone in this town talking about what may or may not have happened last night. Nothing happened. Don't talk about it. I want this woman's reputation to be protected. Good guy, Boaz. And so he sends her back to Naomi with even more barley than he gave her in chapter 2. Possibly about 30 kilos worth. She must have been a strong woman lugging that around. Why does he give her all that barley? Because he wants to bless both Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. He's a good guy, he's gracious, and he wants to help out. I think they make a wonderful, wonderful choice in trying to matchmake Ruth and Boaz. So I want us to come to a conclusion here. I mentioned last week that Boaz's kinsman redeemer points us to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll see that in its entirety. Boaz, last week in chapter 2, used his wealth to bless an undeserving Moabite woman. Jesus, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though he was rich, made himself poor, he lowered himself to death on a cross that he might make us Rich, blessing us with every spiritual blessing, Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. But there is another way in which Boaz points us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate Redeemer. Boaz takes Ruth as his bride. Jesus himself had a bride. One thing I want to say is that some commentators seem to say that as a redeemer, Boaz was legally obligated to marry Ruth. He wasn't. He wasn't at all. He was not legally obligated to marry Ruth. Leviticus 25 says that the nearest relative is to redeem the land, the estate, so that it would remain in the family. Let's get that clear. Redeem the land. The kinsman redeemer redeems the land. What's this got to do with marriage? Some say that Boaz was marrying Ruth out of obligation due to what was called leveret marriage. Deuteronomy 25, this time, verse 5. I'll read it. If brothers dwell together, brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You read that and you go, hold on a moment. Leverett marriage? 
one very popular commentator said, Boaz marries Ruth in a sort of leveret marriage. He was sort of obligated to marry Ruth. I've never seen the word sort of used in a commentary. Because it's not. He was not sort of obligated. Boaz is a relative of who? Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Elimelech was possibly a cousin or brother of Boaz. But Elimelech is Naomi's husband, not Ruth's. Ruth's husband was Malon, who was dead too. If ever there was a leveret marriage taking place, it would be from Malon's brother, Chilion. Ruth and Chilion could perform a leveret marriage. Here's the thing, Chilion's dead too. The only person that was legally obligated to marry Ruth is dead. Add to the fact that Ruth is not an Israelite, she's a Moabite woman from outside of Israel. There is absolutely no obligation upon Boaz to marry Ruth. None at all. So why did Boaz marry Ruth? Quite stunning. Because he wanted to. Because he chose her. If we say that Boaz was obligated to marry Ruth, we do injustice to the beauty of the story. He married her because he loved her and he wanted to marry her. Jesus is a better Boaz. Jesus also has a bride, and we call that bride the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As a husband, I know that I am to seek to love my wife in the way that Christ loves his wife, the church. Boaz was not obligated to marry Ruth, to take her as his bride. He chose to. Christ, Jesus Christ, was not obligated to take the church to be his bride. He chose to. Boaz, however, had reason to take some, had reason outside of himself to take Ruth to be his bride. She was a worthy woman. That's a good enough reason to marry someone. She might have been cute, she might have been funny, she might have been very beautiful. Boaz had multiple reasons outside of himself to take Ruth to be his bride. This is where Jesus is different. Jesus had no reason outside of himself to take the church to be his bride. The church made up of individual people who are broken, messed up, and unworthy. That's us. 
Unworthy people who have sinned against Jesus himself. Jesus has no reason outside of himself to love us. Boaz had to make a payment to take Ruth to be his bride. He had to use his own money to buy the family land. Jesus, too, had to make a payment to take the church to be his bride. And he did that by giving up his life upon the cross and shedding his own blood to take away her sins. That was the price Jesus paid to wash and sanctify us. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. As we see Boaz in this text, we're realizing that Jesus Christ is so much greater than everyone else. He is the ultimate Redeemer. Next week, we'll see that there's a wedding And there's a baby, all because the good and sovereign God provided one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we heard in Revelation chapter 5 at the start of the service, we will spend eternity singing, Worthy is the Lamb who ransomed people who ransomed his bride from every tribe and nation and tongue. Father, I pray that our hearts would be stirred up with gratitude and affection for Christ, the one true Savior, who loved the unlovable, who redeemed the unredeemable. Father, I pray this week as we go out into the world, we would have that gospel upon our hearts and upon our lips and upon our minds. We ask this all in the name of the one who makes this time of worship possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.